As he said, uh, my name is Dustin Epperly. I'm from a partner church in our network um, from Huntington Community Church, which is near, really right beside, Marshall University. And my main responsibility at that church is to oversee our collegiate ministry. So when we were planted, our goal, our main aim was to reach Marshall University's campus. And I know we are probably in mountaineer country. I'm assuming this way, but just so you know, I like both. Um, not, uh, I don't play favorites on that, but that's, that's where we were. And so the Lord saved me my freshman year at Marshall through campus ministry. And I've was at another church for a while, but ended up getting to come back to the church where my wife belonged. And now we've been um, working there since 2017. Um, and I love um, getting to do what I do. And really, really thankful um, that you guys would have me this morning. And so hopefully you've already got 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 10. But uh, if you're a note taker, um, the title of the sermon this morning is Endure Everything. Endure Everything. And we all need endurance. We all need zeal to follow the call of Jesus on our lives. No matter what stage you find yourselves in, no matter what giftedness level you find yourself in, all of us need to endure. And so before we even get to that passage, which I'll spend our time um, working our way slowly through 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 10, I want by way of introduction for you to see the power of this idea of conquering, of enduring from the book of Revelation, and then some quick teaching of a passage from the Gospels where Jesus hits on this idea as well. And last year, our church went through the book of Revelation. And as we were doing that, we saw one thing become very clear. And I want to show you just quickly. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be pretty fast. But I want you to see this. And that is that Jesus wants you to overcome. There's a force behind the book of Revelation, really the whole New Testament, that should wake us up to the realities that we claim as Christians to love and cherish and live out. The realities that we just spent time singing about. It wants us to overcome, to endure. Look at Revelation 2.7. Hopefully it's behind me. This is to the church in Ephesus. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In chapter 2, verse 11, to another church, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. 3.5, and will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The church in Philadelphia, 3.12, the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write him on the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. 321, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. These ideas should be convicting, hopefully, and by God's grace, inspiring for us to be the type of people, to be the type of individuals, not only that, to be the type of church that will endure. And before you start to think that you don't have what it takes to conquer, which you don't in and of yourself, 
I don't want us to forget the truths of the rest of the book in Revelation. What we see is a shift happening when the church is called to conquer. What we also see with that word conquer is how it is applied to Jesus and he has conquered for us on our behalf. Look at 5.5, it's incredible. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then he's talking about the church in chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 15.2, there's more victory shown. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And then 17.14, another picture of our conquering lamb. And we are the chosen ones in this as people in Christ. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then finally, at the end of all of history, Revelation 21.7, the one who conquered will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So what do we do about this? This revelation, but especially the Bible in its entirety, doesn't matter if it doesn't change the way that we live right now. We can't let this become some future-oriented book that doesn't matter for our life. It should change us in the way that we live every day in light of these realities that we've seen. Do you understand that our faith is a conquering faith? Roman calls us, in Romans 8.37, calls us more than conquerors. 1 John calls us to overcome the world in chapter 5, verse 4. The vision that Jesus paints for us in his scriptures is a life that is incredible in the kingdom. We are on a warpath to see souls won for Jesus Darkness pushed back, our own sins destroyed by grace, justice reigning, weak defended, people healed, the devil defeated, the curse reversed, and we get to play a part of that. The local church is an outpost of that kingdom. This group of people in this city, and you can't lose. (laughs) We can't lose. The way that you go to work tomorrow, the way that you go to school or whatever calling right now in your life, knowing that we are called to conquer, but we are already victors in Christ should change the way that we do church. Jesus lays it out this way in Matthew 24. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased let this not be this church or my church or us the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all nations and then the end will come don't you want a faith in Jesus that has room for this type of life If you're like me, you are sick. If your faith that has no categories for kingdom advancement in just the way I live my everyday life, are you convicted of gospel boredom? (laughs) Something I tell our college students all the time, the realities that we claim to believe and live should never leave us bored. Jesus is alive. You are one with God. You have a mission, a purpose, an identity. Yet, We can let our Christian life simply be a normal life that looks the exact same as the world with prayers before meals. Or our ministry becomes 
showing up at church on Sunday and leaving quickly afterward. Now, I've been praying this for me and praying this for us as I've led into this Sunday because, quite frankly, I am very tired of my ability to numb myself out of the burden of life by choosing entertainment over the presence of God. I'm tired of going another week without opening my mouth to share the gospel or reach across social lines to meet someone or pray with someone. Does it bother you that oftentimes we would rather stare at a screen than behold his glory in his word? Does it bother you that maybe sometimes you would rather post about the problems in the world than join Jesus in bringing his grace and truth and love to a world that needs him? It should bother you and I'm burdened for me, our churches, so often we can slip into this and we don't care. And so, if you haven't guessed, it's about to get a little intense for us this morning. And I'll admit, just to be transparent, I am tempted to apologize, or especially knowing I can drop in and some of y'all might not ever see me again. <laughs> it's easy though, to be unfamiliar, Situation, I don't know, maybe 5% of you, 4% of that I met today. But I'm more tempted to want you all to like me than I am to be uncomfortable with you this morning. Because dealing with these realities in front of you guys puts me in direct accountability with and for you all. Here's the thing, I know that not all of us feel like going there this morning, but I know the spirit of God is in you. You do not want to be a part of a church that is comfortable for a Christianity that involves no cross because I know you want a crown. And this is, please don't think this, this is not a call to get out of these seats and come be like me. <laughs> This is a confession that my life looks nothing like I know it should be, and I'm tired of the excuses. And I know that Jesus' grace invites me into something more. And is it really a sacrifice if the end result is more joy and more abundant life? I want to get sustained joy in my life. I want a big vision of Jesus and his kingdom that includes everything from being at church to praying with my family to how I spend my money to how I use my hobbies to reach and love my neighbors. And so, what about you? Have you quit the mission? Have the last couple of years been an excuse to take time away from the Great Commission? Maybe you've walked in here, limped in here too burdened or trapped to even lift your head right now. You're disoriented from the injustice you see and the conflicting worldviews of trying to deal with it. Disenfranchised from even trusting people because of divisiveness and the cultural air that we breathe. Afraid of getting canceled or ignored. And I know that your leadership wants this, and I'm praying this can be a place, even this morning, where you can come to your Lord in your brokenness and receive his grace to get back in the fight. And please know this, in your hope-infused, joy-empowered, gospel ambition to conquer as a church, please remember that Jesus already conquered for us and in your place. And it's in that power that we get to step into joy into the joy of our salvation and into the joy of our gospel mission. And I know our flesh, even right now, is, can kick against this. It is an easier life to just self-protect and look out for your own. And I get it, I'm a dad, so my oldest just turned three. His name is Duke, and I have another one who is 18 months old named Jack. 
And it is a sobering thing to think about that I'm teaching my kids a faith that comes with a promise that they will be hated. That's hard. But that faith comes with a promise to overcome and have true life in him as well. And so, with all that being said, let's turn our attention now to our texts. Let's just beg God to use this now that we might leave this place ready to conquer. So I'm going to start in verse 10 because there is one point to this whole sermon, and it's in verse 10. It says this, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so Paul the Apostle, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that he wrote this to his protege Timothy when he writes these words. History would tell us that this prison sentence that Paul is in when he's writing this ends with his death. And by the power of the Spirit, what he's saying is that he endures everything. No matter what comes at him in his life, wanting to be wrung out for the kingdom. Why does he do it? Look right in the text. I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, so that people will obtain salvation in Christ and the eternal glory would be given to Christ. So the question that I want to ask, and the one point of this sermon is to endure, the question I'm asking when I read someone who's in jail write that kind of thing is how do we get a life like that? Do you have a faith that would be in prison and only care about the salvation of others? It's hard for me to care more for the kingdom than Netflix some evenings. It's not funny because either the word is true or it isn't. And I want a joy like this. I want a life like this. And I believe that the first nine verses of this passage can help us see the gospel logic that gets us to the point where we can say with Paul, I want to endure everything for the sake of the elect, especially in Charleston. So let's look at the first two verses together. This is uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, says this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so I want you to see four realities in these first two verses. Remember, these are designed to put you back in the fight, ready to be the type of Christian that will endure everything, whatever may come. So the first reality comes in the first four words. First reality is this. You are in the family of God. Look at that. He says, you then, my child. Don't you love that Paul calls Timothy his child in the faith? It's a great reminder for church families. Um, at HCC, where I'm from, we have a th thing that we say that is church family isn't like family, it is family. So you belong to this body of believers here at Res. You've got all kinds of dads and moms and uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters. And this morning, you've met one of your distant cousins from Huntington. It's how the family of God works. I like to remind college students when they join our church that they are now covenanting with me to help me raise my kids. <laughs> because we're all in it together. So when you see this reality in the New Testament of child and brother, there's something bigger going on than just, oh, how are you doing, brother? The gospel creates a family. And this should wash away any individual, individualistic tendencies in us that have been ingrained in us, I think, often from our culture. Our flesh kicks against the idea of the gospel making us family. But you must understand, you are a child of God. 
So it's not just horizontally. Remember that your family, being a child of God is a vertical dimension that I think oftentimes we miss. Um, mentioned my son, Duke, and I love when he gets scared or hurt. I don't love when he gets scared or hurt. There's more to that. I love when he gets scared or hurt and runs to me because he knows that I will grab him and hold him and take care of what hurt him. That makes me happy when he recognizes that he is too weak on his own to take care of whatever Jack did or whatever happened. He runs to me. Our Father in heaven delights in us. If you are in Christ, you are his child. And so even as you consider, and I hope you consider your life in light of the needs around you, the loss that you go to work with, all of the problems in our world that we are called to step into by the power of Jesus, when you're weighing under the weight of that and thinking, how in the world can we ever fix what is broken in this place? Do not forget that you have a heavenly father that loves you more than you could ever know. I'm begging you to believe it. Because of the gospel, you are actually free to live with abandon for other people. You are free to actually live with childlike faith in a father who loves you. And I hate in my own soul when even that gets boring. <laughs> that would change everything if you left here believing that all over again. Second reality, you need strengthening grace. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we're commanded here to be strengthened by grace. You need to understand, if you guys in this city, me in Huntington, us in our state, among the nations, if we are going to accomplish this mission, we need strength. And it's clear it's not gonna come through our efforts or our discipline or our giftedness or our abilities. We need help. <laughs> we need gospel strength. And gospel strength comes when you understand just how dependent and how weak you are. And this... Strengthening grace means a million good things for you, but I want to take a moment to aim this supernaturally, bought by Jesus, strengthening grace at the three enemies that all of us have. And that is the enemy, the devil, the world, and our sin. And all of these work in tandem, as you know, to get you from using your life to worship Jesus. This is the essence of spiritual warfare. I think sometimes we're tricked into thinking that spiritual warfare is some dark shady room where the person's head turns around 360 degrees and then crawls up a wall backwards or something and turns into a bat or whatever. We're tricked into thinking that this is what spiritual warfare is. And although that would be terrifying, spiritual warfare at its core, at its essence, is a fight to worship Jesus in your heart. And these enemies work in tandem to get you from doing that. And the strengthening grace is aimed at all three of these enemies to get you back in the fight. Do you realize that the grace of God has defeated the devil? Jesus' death and resurrection has put him to open shame. And he will still try to tempt you and to accuse you. But grace strengthens us in temptation because we are now actually able to say no to sin and see that Jesus is worth it. That only comes from grace. Grace strengthens us when we fall, when we fail in sin, because we're already forgiven. We can't get any more in God's favor than we already are because of grace. And grace strengthens us when we suffer because this world is broken and darkness hates the light. And because of grace, we can know it's not condemnation, but instead it is used for our good. And all of this strengthening grace is in Christ. 
not in your willpower. And we get to give ourselves to him for that power. And so as we receive that grace, what does it look like to give ourselves to that mission? I think that's where the next two truths from these two verses come in. So reality number three in the first two verses, our job as Christians, as a church is to entrust the gospel to faithful people. And we need grace to do it. Look at the next verse with me. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what Timothy heard from Paul, he was supposed to entrust to people who would tell others. And I love the word entrust here, understanding that we've been given something so valuable. And the point is that we are to give it to others. This is how God is changing the world and bringing his kingdom. This is how the kingdom will reign in Charleston. From this group of people deciding what we hear from the word, we are going to entrust to people in our gospel sharing so that God might, by his spirit, open their eyes in faith. We have good news to share. Jesus tells us to go make disciples. We have, we have to tell them the news. God saves, of course, we know that, but he uses human instruments to go and proclaim what Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection. We lean into people's lives. We show them the love of Jesus. We teach them the love of Jesus. We help them see it, and we lead them toward Jesus all while God does the work. Please understand, this is the essence of ministry. It's how all of us ended up here in the first place, if you're a believer. Someone told someone who told someone who told someone who told you, and God opened your eyes to the glory of the gospel in Christ. Our lack of evangelism and discipleship in our personal lives is not only disobedient, it's robbing our joy. It's what you were remade in Christ to do. Last reality in verse one and two, you see four generations of discipleship here. Paul, who's writing to Timothy, Timothy to faithful others, and then those faithful others are supposed to give to others. I think it's a good challenge for us to have a generational view of discipleship. We're invited into this. And so what I think happens in this passage, and I love this passage so much. After these two verses, the next part here lets us in on some working metaphors that show us glimpses of the mission of discipleship that we've already been called into. So let's look at um, verses three through seven together. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Verse seven is key. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And I believe verse seven is an invitation for us to meditate on these ministry metaphors. Let them guide us, inspire us, and motivate us on our mission. So not only are you a child of God, not only are you called on a mission to entrust the gospel to faithful people who will tell people who will tell people who will tell people until Jesus returns, you are in Christ a gospel soldier, a gospel athlete, and a gospel farmer. These are identifiers for us of what we are invited into as followers of Christ. These truths are tangible ways that God can shape your heart and mold you in the type of person who will endure everything for the sake of those knowing Christ. 
And we're not gonna have time this morning to go through all of the ways that this applies to you, but I'm trusting that you will live out verse seven with me, that you will think with me, consider, and that the Holy Spirit will aim his understanding at you so you can repent of where you need to repent and believe where you need to believe so you can get back on mission in your lives. So let's look at the gospel soldier. Verse three and four. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the first thing we need to understand about being gospel soldiers is that we are called to share in suffering because that's what good soldiers do. I love that it says share there. You get one of us, you've got us all type of mentality. And you notice, if you look, that as there. So we're sharing and suffering, not only with Christ, but with each other as, so what's it look like, as a good soldier. That should help us understand what our suffering may look like. I love this quote, describing this. A soldier suffers because he or she lives a life of instant obedience with an ever-present threat to their life, safety, and comfort. And that should be encouraging to you as a follower of Christ. This is beautiful. Disciple-making is a war. And of course, not with guns and bombs and the weapons of the world. That's not what we're talking about. But we fight with serving and praying and giving up our lives for the sake of bringing others into the kingdom. Don't you long for this kind of godly life? Wouldn't you love to run in here next Sunday, ready to start your new series, I think, is what's coming, if I watch the YouTube right. But you run in here ready to celebrate knowing I've lived my life, come what may, for the sake of other people. And that's what the gospel soldier can call you into. But if you long for this type of godly life, be warned. I want you to count the costs. 2 Timothy 3.12, cross-reference in this same book, says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which should be all of us for Christians, will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why does this happen? Because when the kingdom of God collides with the kingdom of darkness, darkness will fight back. But because of the power of the Spirit, we don't have to care. <laughs> because we love Jesus. And he makes our death gain. You ever thought about that? The worst thing that can happen to you is you die. That's the best thing that can happen to a Christian. Of course there's mourning, and of course we don't ignore the pain and the reality of the curse of death. But in the gospel, the biggest curse becomes the biggest blessing because of the resurrection. We're called to suffer. In Acts, they sing when they get thrown into prison. They're thankful they get to share in the suffering of Christ and they tell each other that through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom. Man, I hope that fires you up. I'm ready. I want to go back to Huntington. I want to get back to our campus in August. I want my life to matter pushing darkness back. And I know you would love to be a church like that. You've all already done incredible things in this city. I think the call here is to keep enduring. The next gospel soldier related truth we see here though, is that good soldiers do not get entangled in civilian pursuits. You see that there. Note that this civilian pursuits are not inherently sinful. They become sinful when they entangle a soldier when they become the point of your life, rather than your mission of glorifying God by loving him and loving others and making disciples. 
I don't have time to get into all of this, but suffice to say that learning about civilian pursuits and being distracted by civilian pursuits has never been easier. This is not a call to disengage from important matters that aren't necessarily ministry. I believe that I have to pay water bills and mow grass, and I believe God is glorified when I play pickleball or when we exercise or decorate our houses. But this is a call to stop letting those things entangle you. We are so easily tricked. I think all of us, if we're honest this morning, would admit that we are amusing and distracting and entertaining ourselves to death, yet we do it anyways. I'm begging you to repent of letting the things of this world entangle you. But this verse doesn't leave us hanging on what exactly the root sin that we're repenting of is. What are we repenting of? We repent of pleasing ourselves over God. Do you see the gospel logic in that verse? Why do good soldiers not get entangled? Because they wish to please the enlisting officer. The grounding for the not getting entangled is a spirit-empowered desire to please God above yourself. That's what the gospel soldier does. Let's go to gospel athlete, verse five. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So what is the lesson of the gospel athlete? A couple things. We must compete according to the rules and at the end of this race, we get crowned. So the realities here for us is that God has given all of us a race to run and personal holiness, obeying God's rules, commands are crucial, including so crucial that we get this this morning, including the commands to repent when we sin. I don't want you to let this metaphor undercut your assurance of salvation, but instead let it inspire it. Because you've been given eternal life in Christ, run and keep running. Repent of every sin, shake off every weight, refuse to do things in the world's ways as a church and as individuals, and you get a crown. Jesus will crown us with the crown of life. And that's our goal. We want to run, finish our race that has been laid before us. And so the gospel athlete can get us off the couch and back into the race. And there's only more grace for where you have fallen. Please understand, our God is a God of mercy for when we fall. His finger is on the mercy trigger. And it's aimed at repentant hearts. Don't let your flesh or the enemy trick you into thinking that because you've taken so much time off from what you were actually recreated to do, that you are too far gone because you are not. There's only more grace. There's only more mercy. All right, let's look at the farmer. Verse six, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The gospel farmer teaches us that we should work hard for ministry. There is a harvest out there that we need to go get. The gospel invites us into a mission that lets us work hard for what truly matters. And I know you're tired of just working hard for the goal of just sitting down at the end of the day. There's a more glorious hardworking that comes from resting in Jesus, and it is incredible. Don't you want to go to bed exhausted, wrung out for the glory of God? I am so convicted and tired of looking back at the end of my days. Plenty of energy because of all the ways that I shortchanged what I should have been doing in the name of Jesus. 
whether it's when I just run through my prayer list or skim my Bible reading or choose to stay silent instead of engaging my wife or turning on the TV so Duke and Jack are distracted instead of engaging them, just making it through a church service or a prayer meeting or not caring if discipleship meetings get canceled. (laughs) I can be so lazy. But the gospel farmer calls us into a life that reminds us there's a crop, there's a harvest to go get. There's strengthening grace here to be led into. We get to work hard for ministry. And I love um, farming and gardening metaphors. It has nothing to do with the fact that I have any farming background or really gardening background. But I do yard work every Saturday in the summer. And one thing I love and hate about it is that yard work is so unforgiving. (laughs) Like, you either pulled the weeds or you didn't. You really do just reap what you sow when it comes to cultivating the earth. I love that. Oftentimes, like you think you can just kind of keep delaying mowing the grass, thinking that maybe it just will stop growing or something. Maybe that's just me. But I love thinking about ministry as farming or gardening, knowing the hard work has to happen. And so questions you need to ask and consider in your personal worship throughout the week even. What does your hard work look like in your own spiritual life and personal ministry? Are you ignoring the weeds? just pulling them at surface level? Are you getting deep and doing real work? Let me connect dots for us with these three characters that we've met. Our call as children of God is to make disciples who make disciples. This is how we bring the kingdom. We love and work for justice and show mercy and show off the nature and work of Jesus with our declaration of good news and the demonstration of our good works. And that ministry will take strength and grace to remember that we are children of God. And that ministry will be like a battle where we're going to suffer and we must keep our attention on what truly matters. It will be like a race where we must fight for holiness through repentance. And it'll be like a field where we have to work hard to get the crop and get the harvest. And then this passage just makes a beeline to Jesus. And I want these last verses in our last moments together to awaken your heart to worship Whatever commitments you need to make this morning, I want them to be aimed at bringing praise to Jesus alone. Look at verses eight and nine. This is incredible. So after all that, you're thinking, oh man, we gotta go fight, we gotta go dig ground, we gotta keep running. And then Paul says, Timothy, verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Man, I love this. Family, extended family. In the midst of all the war, in the midst of all the race, in the midst of all the hard work, don't forget Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He's the king of kings. This is the gospel that we get to preach and live out and cherish and live and take heart. Because even if the worst happens, they throw us in jail or kill us or whatever your worst fear might be in your particular context, remember the word is not bound. You may be, but the word cannot be. Paul was reminding Timothy that he was bound, but the word wasn't. This is our call. We remember Jesus for our strengthening grace, and we preach the word, stay out of the way, and watch God bring the kingdom in our homes, in our jobs, and in our city. The word does all the work. The word is our weapon in our war for souls. 
The word is what we desire over civilian pursuits. The word is what sustains us in suffering. The word is what keeps our souls in check. The word is what keeps us running the race. The word is what gets us into the ground and brings the growth. The word is our tool in the harvest and the word is not bound. This is what changes the world. You are dispensable. Our churches are dispensable, but the word isn't bound. Jesus will get his people. And this is the power of the gospel. We have a message that cannot be stopped. And even though our little expressions of what's going on in our local churches, and I wholeheartedly believe in the local church, God is bringing his kingdom. And it cannot be bound. The band, you want to make your way back up. This will probably be a good time. Um, I want to say a few more closing words just as we get ready to sing. That is this. Remember Jesus Christ, the ultimate soldier who never once got entangled by worldly pursuits, the one who didn't just share in suffering, he suffered in our place, the ultimate athlete who had his race end with a sprint up a hill to his death where he won the crown of resurrection life, the ultimate farmer who didn't just sow the seed of the word, he was the word. He was the seed sown into the grave and raised to life to unleash his kingdom into the darkness in his church. He is the point of our lives and our ministry. And even though we will eventually be off this earth, his word isn't bound. It will go on forever and ever. And giving that to faithful others is what we're called into. And so because of all of that, verse 10, therefore, All these truths, all these things we've celebrated this morning. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We endure everything for the sake of the elect. We don't let the word elect get us into a theological debate. Instead, we let it show us that the doctrine of election in our midst is actually the doctrine of guaranteed victory. The Lord will get his harvest, and we get to be in on it as we're faithful to his call.